Amen. You may be seated this morning. Thank you for joining us today. As you just heard, thank you, Mike, for reading that. Um, we will be continuing through the book of Matthew. There's a lot to get to today, so I'm just going to jump right in. Uh, but before I, I jump into Matthew, I'm going to read a separate scripture that will make sense later. Um, if you want to turn there, it's just a few pages ahead. It's in the book of Luke. It's chapter 19, verses 41 and 42. Luke 19, 41 and 42, and it says, And when he drew near, this is Jesus, And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Alright, I want to ask you guys a question that I already know the answer to, so I'm not going to ask for a raise of hands here, but has anyone ever just missed the point? Just been in a situation, you've been somewhere, you thought you knew what was going on, and it turned out you had absolutely no idea. You just missed it. You went to the bathroom when he said, I see dead people, and then you got back, and Bruce Willis was trying to open that door, and you're like, what happened? He was opening it before, and now he can't grab the doorknob. Some movie reference that apparently no one gets. Luke, I am your, and you sneeze, so you don't hear what Darth Vader said, and you're like, uh, who, who was he again? Is he... But Darth Vader's Luke's dad, that's a spoiler alert. Titanic, the boat sinks, Jack dies. Okay, anyway, we've all been there. We've missed the point. We have thought we knew what was going on, and we just didn't. Uh, there was this one time I was renting a house uh, with a few people. They will remain unnamed because I don't want him to mute me while he's sitting behind the soundboard. This nameless guy that you no way you could figure out that code of who I'm talking about was living with me at the time. And we were going to do a cookout, right, in our backyard. So we were going to go to Walmart, get the hot dogs and the drinks. We won't talk about what kind of drinks, but we were going to go get stuff from Walmart, okay? So we go, we're looking around, whatever. We get all the way back to the house, and everyone is, some people are already gathered up, and they're like, hey, uh, guys, where's the food that you went to Walmart to buy? And we were like, oh, yeah, we forgot that. But we do have this two-foot inflatable kiddie pool and a beach ball, so who needs food? We've got this, and we had a blast that day, by the way, but we won't talk about that either. We missed the point. We went to Walmart and completely missed the point. We forgot what we were doing. We missed it. This is where we are in the epic saga of Pharisees versus Jesus. They have just missed it. We read here that they saw the Sadducees had been silenced once again. That word silenced in the original language means uh, is the equivalent of putting a muzzle on. Jesus had silenced them so much, they literally couldn't talk. They didn't know what to say. So the Pharisees think, well, I guess it's our turn again. So they step in. A lawyer steps in. Now, quick note here. This is not a lawyer like we think of today. It's not an attorney. This is an expert on the law. This is an expert on Old Testament law. He knew them. He could quote them. He could probably name all 613 of them. He knew them all. He felt confident that he could win a debate or answer any question or, or, or win an argument against someone against or about the law. He was an expert. You see, he walks up to him and he says, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment? At first, you would think, hey, he's just trying to get some information. He calls him teacher. He, he just wants to learn until you read that he was doing it to test him, to trap him. Again, their intentions are still the same. They are trying to trap Jesus. See, there are 613 total commands in the Old Testament law. 
365 of them were negative commands, so these are the do not do this. And then the 248 left were positive, do this, honor your father and mother, those kinds of things. The Pharisees and the lawyers we described, they engaged in debate all the time about which ones were, the, the, they called them light and weighty, so light and heavy. Which ones were really important, which ones were not so important. This does not mean they were throwing out the unimportant ones. This doesn't mean you didn't have to follow those. It just means they weren't really checking on them. They weren't going to your house and raiding your house to see if you were boiling a goat in its mother's milk. That's Exodus 23, 19. It's a literal command. You're welcome. You learned something today. But they might go to your house, check if you're stealing stuff. They might go to your house if you're rumored to be in dark magic or these things. They might go to your house if you are rumored to have killed someone or any of the big ones that even we would deem, yes, those are, those are bigger commands. They've engaged in this debate all the time. So along those lines, they plan to trap Jesus one more time by asking him, which one of these is the greatest? Because see here, their goal is still to simply split the party. We see this in political campaigns all the time. If, if one side can just get the other side to say something stupid and make some followers leave, their power goes down, their, their clout goes down. They don't have as much of a following because they've split it. We see this all the time, and that is what they are doing here. They are trying to get Jesus, if, if someone thinks murder is the greatest command and he says it's stealing, those guys might leave, and then vice versa. We just want him to say something that will split his following remember this this is following just a few days after the triumphal entry the jews were worshiping jesus on his way into jerusalem they thought their political leader had arrived they thought jesus was coming to overtake and set up his earthly kingdom in that moment you see the pharisees thought that too they just didn't want it to happen like the other jews did they didn't want jesus to take power because they didn't know how that might affect their power and the the setup that they had of making money and they had, they had a, a pretty good life. They didn't want to mess up the status quo, so they were trying to get Jesus' power to go down in any way that they could. So they ask him this trick question. Now we've seen Jesus speak in a lot of ways. We've seen him speak in parables when they ask him questions. And then he tells this story and everybody's like, what? I, huh? Even the disciples, get, they, they wait because they don't want to be embarrassed. They wait till they get him to the side. They're like, hey, I mean, we know what it means, but just tell us just to make sure we're right. They had no idea. So he's teaching in these parables, and they don't know what he's saying. Or a lot of times he'll ask a question back to them, right? We've seen this over the past couple weeks. Should we pay taxes? What does Jesus say? He doesn't say yes or no. In a way he does, but what does he say? Whose inscription is on the money? You come to your own conclusion about that. Last week... When they're talking about marriage in the afterlife and all of these things, what does he say? He says, what did God say to Moses in the burning bush? He didn't just flat out answer the question. He asked them questions to allow them to come to their own conclusions. And that is usually what a great teacher does. But here, he does neither of those things. Here, he flat out just straight up answers the question. And I think that he wants to be as clear as he possibly can. He wants to make sure there is no room for a claim of ignorance later. He wants to make sure that no one can say that they were confused by his answer here. He just plainly answers the questions. No ifs, no ands, no buts about it. Listen to what he says. He tells them, The greatest command is to love the Lord God with all your heart, 
with all your soul, and with all your mind. This would have been a very familiar refrain for these Jewish people. This is called the Shema. They would have quoted this, said it out loud at least once a day. Good Jews would have done it twice a day. They would have quoted it. We just read it earlier in the services. Deuteronomy 6.5. This is where that is from. It is love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, and strength. They would have said this. They would have known this. They would have heard this. And here Jesus reiterates that this is the first and greatest commandment. Meaning... If you get this one wrong, good luck keeping the rest of them. Good luck even getting close on the rest of them. This one is the most important. You see the irony here is that this lawyer, this expert in the law, he would have considered himself to know all of these things. He's standing right in front of and trying to deceive the one true law giver, the one true law keeper, the very one the law was about is who he is trying to trick with the law the second irony is that he is asking a question about the greatest commandments Jesus gives him two we'll get to the second one in a minute and he's not keeping either one of them he's an expert in the law and he's not even hitting the first two ones that Jesus is going to list for him see this should reiterate to us that knowledge does not save you knowing stuff does not equal salvation there are biblical scholars out there that know more about the bible than i ever even dream to know that are not saved because they don't believe what it says with faith they believe what it says historically in some ways some guy named jesus lived see knowledge does not save you we can know a lot about jesus and not know Jesus. Jesus is after our hearts. He wants information to transfer to worship. We see here the recitation of the same word three times in this command. That word is all. We must love God with all our souls, with all our minds, with all our hearts. This leaves nothing out. This is not a way of separating the three parts of a person. I guess in a way it kind of is, but it's God is saying he wants everything. He wants your life. He wants everything that we are, everything that we can be, everything that we hope to be, everything that we understand. He must be the center of all of it. We say with every fiber of our being, right? That's the saying we have. This is what God is saying. With every fiber of your being, no matter what, it has to be with me at the center of it. This is not learning more things about Jesus. We already mishandle the truths we do have. We don't follow them very well most of the time either. It's not learning more about Jesus. Now, please hear me. I'm not telling you not to learn more information about Jesus. It is don't elevate that to the point of thinking that is what saves you. It's not an informational issue with even this man. He's standing looking at Jesus face to face, and he still didn't have a clue who or what he was talking about. This is about knowing more of God. This is about doing things for the sole purpose of glorifying God, even menial tasks. There's an article that John Piper writes, is drinking orange juice to the glory of God. I encourage all of you to just Google that. You'll find it and read that. Because most of us have that question, how do I glorify God in the small things of life? He answers it very well, better than I can, so just read that. But we must have a singular passion, a laser focus on God and His glory. That must be the goal of everything that we do. And that is what Jesus is saying here. Love God with everything you've got. 
Jesus is telling this man he's totally missed the point. You've missed it. He's pointing out to them that he is doing the very same that, thing that we do. We miss the point. We are constantly and futilely trying to earn grace, trying to deserve salvation, trying to merit forgiveness. We may not verbally say it. You know, if someone asks us, we don't go, yeah, you just do enough good deeds and you'll get to heaven. We never tell someone that, but our lives look like it. We're trying so hard with the white knuckle grip to hold on to these truths. If I can just do this a little bit better, if I can just do a few more good things for God, He will really be impressed. Man, won't He love me more? Won't He bless me more? This is the basic question the lawyer is asking. What commands do I really have to keep? Can I throw some of these out and not really pay attention to them? Which ones are the greatest commandments that if I can just do those, if I just do enough, do, 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 or don't do, don't do, don't do. If I can just keep the list tight enough, or will you love me? Will you save me? You see, Jesus' answer was shocking to them because they were just glorified behaviorists. If I can just keep these behaviors in line. They considered themselves very religious and very worshipful of God, and yet what they were truly worshiping was their ability to keep these commands. And Jesus is telling them something we need to hear in 2017 is that religion cannot save you. Ritual cannot save you. Behaviorism is worthless if it is not rooted in and growing out of a love for God. If its sole intent is to not reflect God's inherent glory, then it's useless. Just do what you want. If you're just doing it to earn grace, because you can't. I'm not telling you to go out and live how you want. But if that's your sole intent, you're not any closer to God than if you didn't do those things. Behaviorism is worthless and let us, is rooted in a love for God. A sermon I listened to this week put it this way. I don't remember the guy's name, I'm sorry. I couldn't find it again. We are still trying so hard to prove we are worthy by the very law that was intended to show that we aren't. I hope that stepped on your toes as much as it stepped on mine when I heard it this week. The law was intended to prove to us we can't do this. We need someone to do it for us, and yet that's what we hold so tightly to. Why are you going to heaven? Well, I'm a good person. I don't do this. I don't do that. I don't do that. The answer is Jesus. Why are you going to heaven? Jesus. Jesus said he would save me for some reason or another, and I don't know why. We must, must, must get this. Behavior doesn't get you into heaven. But something else it doesn't do is it doesn't send you to hell either. Hear me out on this. Behavior does not send you to hell. The lack of faith it takes to engage yourself in the behaviors that you know are outside the will of God is what sends you to hell. The heart it takes to see God's commands and say, those don't apply to me. I'm not keeping those because who is God to tell me what to do and not to do? That will send you to hell. The lack of love for God, it requires to look straight at Him like this man was saying and say, you are not worthy of my total life, my total devotion, my unabashed love towards you. You are not worthy of that. That is what sends you to hell. It's not the actions. It's the heart. But the same can be said about your ticket to heaven. Behavior does not get you there. It is the faith that it takes to say, I am going to love God with my whole being, even at great personal cost. 
It is the love it requires to say, I'm going to obey God's commands even when it is personally inconvenient. And I don't really want to, and it would work out better if I could do it this way. It is the faith it takes to have counted the cost and deemed him worthy of what he is asking. And what he is asking for is this, our whole entire lives, our hearts, our souls, our minds, our strength, everything is what he is asking for. This is how we make all decisions in life, right? If you want to buy a car and you say it's worth 10000 and the seller wants twenty, then you look at him and say, it's not worth what you're asking. So therefore, my answer is no. If you get offered a job, they offer to pay you 20000 and you think it's worth 50000 what are you going to say? It's not worth what you're asking. I'm not putting that much work in for this amount of pay. I had lunch with a friend of mine this week. This friend does not identify himself as a believer, but he says that he wants to be. He, he's wrestling through a lot of truths in Scripture. He's struggling with some claims that the Bible makes, so we were able to discuss those. And I was able to tell him, look, man, it's... This, isn't, this book, this religion, this faith, Jesus, is not about blind faith. He's not asking us to have a blind faith based on nothing. But I also can't give you ironclad proof of any of this stuff either. I wasn't there. I didn't see Jesus resurrected in person. I didn't see God create the universe in person. I'm getting old. I'm not quite that old. This applies to creation this applies to miracles this applies to death and resurrection this applies to all of the truth claims of the bible what we have to do is take the evidence we do have and the things we do know and based on that evidence draw a conclusion of what is most logically the right answer what is most logically the most plausible answer and i said but more importantly than that we have to do what we have to do is look at what jesus claimed claimed to be to look at what the Bible claims Jesus is and what he did. We then ask, based on that evidence, are his claims true? This is not blind faith. This is not ironclad proof. Based on all that we do know, what's the most plausible explanation for the resurrection? And then I said, what we have to do from there is determine, do we believe in the Jesus of the Bible? Do we believe he lived perfectly? Do we believe he died in our place? Do we believe he raised three days later so that we have a chance to be reconciled to God based only on his sacrifice. I think the evidence points to all of those things being true, but I can't make that determination for you. But if they are true, what you have to do, so do your research, do all of that, but if you determine that these claims are true, you have to ask yourself, is it worth what he is asking based on these truths? If these things are true about Jesus, is he worthy to give my life to him? Obviously, I wouldn't be standing here if I didn't answer that yes. But I can't make that decision for you, just like I can't make it for him. If these things are true about Jesus, is he worthy to obey? Is he worthy to love with all of our hearts, minds, and souls? Is he worthy to give our lives to proclaiming his gospel? See, Jesus here is telling us what God requires. It is a true and unwavering devotion to Him in all that we do and all that we are. We cannot get past that today. It's everything. Everything about your life must be devoted to this. 
This includes, but is not limited to, obedience to his commands. John 14, 15 says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So I'm not calling us to disobedience here. I'm absolutely calling us to obedience. It's just that obedience does not save you. It's the heart behind our obedience. If we love him, we will keep his commandments. He wants it all. He wants the action. He wants the heart. He wants the motivation. He wants everything. And you have to ask yourself today, is he worth it? Is he worthy to give that to? That answer is what gets you to heaven. If you are willing to say and truly believe that Jesus is enough, you will receive your reward of being with the one who is truly enough for all eternity. If you live a life that says Jesus is not enough here, he won't be enough there either, so why would he let you in? And furthermore, why would you want to go? That's what the reward is. The reward is Jesus. If you have deemed him not worthy here, he won't be enough there. What are you going to do if you do get to heaven? Jesus is asking us for everything and for those willing to give it to him through the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives, receive the reward. Salvation cannot come through religion. Salvation can only come through a Savior. We must get that. Salvation cannot come through religion. It can only come through a Savior. Then he goes on to say something very interesting. He says the second command is like the first. You must love your neighbor as yourself. So we've got love God covered. And then he says, but this one is 1A and 1B here. You must love your neighbor as yourself. He says that these commands are alike. Why are they alike? Are they alike just because they talk about love? I guess the answer to that would be kind of. See, Jesus is telling the lawyer and us that these two loves are inextricably linked. You cannot claim to love God and not love people. You cannot separate these two things. They must go together. 1 John 4, 19-21 makes this extremely clear. It says, We love because He first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God who he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. The scripture is pretty straightforward. We love because he first loved us. And that love extends to him and to others. H.B. Charles says it like this. God does not love you because you are lovable. You are lovable because God loves you. That is the order we have to remember. So if God loves his people for no reason inside of themselves, but if God loves his people when they don't deserve it and most of the time don't love him back the way that they should, if God loves his people, we must also love what God loves. We cannot claim to love God and then not love what he loves. Interesting word study here. There are three words for the word love used in the original language. There's really four, but two of them overlap a lot. There's eros. This is an intimate type of love. Think husband and wife. Think Song of Solomon. This is a, we all know what that one is. There is storge and philia, which are, these are the two that overlap. This is a deep affection for someone very close to you. One was used most of the time for blood family. One was most of the time used for non-blood family, but that were treated as such. So these are the two that overlap. This is a deep, 
deep affection for others. This is a love for others. And then there is agape. We've all probably heard that word if we've been in church almost at all. This is the love God has for His people. But defined outside of that is an unconditional kind of love that means loving someone to the best interest of the one being loved even to the self-sacrifice of the one doing the loving. Even if the one being loved does not deserve to be loved that way. Obviously, the biggest example of this is Christ on the cross. We did not deserve that love. We didn't earn that love, and yet it was poured out upon us. It was agaped. It's not really how that works, but it's how we're going to do it today. Which one do you think here is used in the command to love God? Eros, storge, philia, agape. Y'all can talk. Agape. Apparently you can't talk. Agape. This is, we must love God unconditionally. Which one is used for the love others? It's the same one. It's agape. This is not the storge philia, you just love people like you love family. This is the exact same word. He is telling us here that to truly love God, we must love others with the same type of self-sacrificing kind of love that He loved us with and the kind of love that we love Him with. Even when they don't deserve it and even when a lot of times they push it away and don't accept it. Or don't want it. We love them anyway. We are to love with no conditions. Love, period. The rest of that sentence is not love your neighbor as yourself if they deserve it, if they're nice, if they're awesome, if they love you back, if they can benefit you in some way. It's to love. We agape love because God is worthy. He never lets us down. He never disappoints. He is worthy of unconditional love because we love him because of who he is. We also agape love people because God is worthy. People have been made in His image. They have been given His essence. They are His people. We love people because of whose they are. God made them in His image so that we could love them with an agape kind of love. This cannot be done out of order. cannot love God and hate people. But you cannot love people the way God is asking us to if you do not love God first. No one is going to be self-sacrificing all of the time out of love for others if they do not have God inside of them. Side note, really, really, really quick. The second part of this command to love others as you love yourself has been twisted around and, and taken out of context so much that I just feel like I need to address it. Most people, or a lot of people, say, see, you've got to love yourself. You've got to find a way to love yourself before you can really love others the right way. And that is so far from the original meaning of this text that it makes me want to throw up. The highest form of earthly love is not loving yourself, okay? This is what Jesus is getting at. We naturally love ourselves. I'm awesome. Why wouldn't I love myself? Okay, nobody's shaking their head no? I guess I am awesome. No, we all love ourselves, right? It's very, very simple to love ourselves. We always look out for ourselves. We naturally do this. Jesus is telling us that that love is assumed Love others that same way. The same way you just naturally and easily love yourself and do what's right for you and best for you, do that for other people. Self-sacrificing. Soapbox over. Okay, this is interesting. Even Jesus cannot separate these two commands. If one is true, the other must be true. These are the two greatest commands. Jesus says that upon these two commands depend all the law and the prophets. He's saying you get these two right, the other ones will pretty much fall into place. Think of a door with two hinges. 
Most doors have three, I get it. But think of a door with two hinges. One hinge is loving God, the other hinge is loving people. One of those is out of whack, the door is out of whack. Both of those are working properly, the door works properly. If you love God, you will obey Him. If you love your neighbor, you won't steal his stuff. If you love God, you will do, not want to do anything to dishonor His name. If you love your neighbor, you won't try to get with his wife. Pretty simple here. If you do these things, the other ones kind of take care of themselves. The text here is calling us to a wholehearted submission to the worship of God, to giving our lives to loving others with every drop of our being. That's why they are alike. I was in counseling with one of our guys at Program Living where I work this week, and this topic came up, and I read these verses to him, the ones that we're preaching through today. And I said, just, what does that mean? Now, mind you, this person has been a Christian for two months, according to himself. So he's a, as a baby Christian as you can get, pretty much. And he said, quote, Well, if I claim to be saved without loving people, then I cannot be a Christian. I asked him if it was that, was it, is it that simple? And he, then he started doubting himself, thinking I was looking for more of an answer. And he was like, what, what did I miss? And I was like, you didn't miss anything. That's it. You cannot claim to be a Christian while not loving people. That's it. It is impossible to to do that. You can't say, yes, I love God and not love people. John, 1 John tells us we are a liar if we say that. It is that simple, people. Love God, love people, end of sentence. And yet, it's impossible for us to do on our own. I've never once carried this out. We all say, don't judge me on my worst five minutes. Don't judge me on my best five minutes of carrying this out either because I'm not very good at it, and no one is. Outside of the power of the Holy Spirit, it's, it's really impossible. But we wander, we fall astray. It's that simple, though. If we can do these two things perfectly, then the other commandments, the other obedience, the other motivations will take care of themselves. So, now the obvious questions then, if it's so impossible, then first, the obvious question is, who is our neighbor? We'll answer that very briefly. Leviticus 19 says, When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as a native among you. You shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. This command in its original context makes it clear that no one is to be excluded from neighbor. It says, love your neighbor as yourself. This means everyone. Every person is deserving of this love from us. Because God has commanded us to do so. What about murderers? Love them. What about homosexuals? We love them. What about atheists? We love them. What about fill in the blank? The answer is the same. We love them. This does not mean we accept everything that they do, tolerate everything that we do, or, or fail to tell them the truth when it is a sin. We do that, but we do that lovingly. We do that with love. Okay, the next obvious question then is how? How do we do this? How do we love God with everything? And then how do we pour that same love on to others? Now here's where we could get really application heavy and I could give you 20 ways to love your neighbor or 10 ways to love God with all of your life. That's one, that's just not the kind of church you're at. And two, I don't have those today. You see, we said earlier that this Pharisee, this lawyer had missed the point. The point of the law was to point forward to Jesus 
The point of the law was not to save those who kept it perfectly, but to reiterate that someone is coming who will keep it perfectly, and that is the person you're looking for. That is the person that is deserving of worship. The point of the law was to proclaim that salvation does not come through religious practice and ritual. It comes through a Savior, and that Savior's name is Jesus. So how do we love God and love people? I want to refer you back now to the scripture we read to start this. Luke 19. It says, And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. In this passage, we see Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. This is the epicenter of religion at the time. This is where all religious practice pretty much took place. And he is weeping over it because they were missing the point. They were believing in the lies that they could save themselves. It says, if only you would have known the things that would bring you peace. Because it's not these rituals. It's not these sacrifices. It's not these things that you're doing. It's me and I'm coming. If only you had known that. If only you had recognized it. These people were lost. And Jesus was weeping over it. Jesus, the one who was being worshipped right then and there, at the time, as he wept, was being worshipped. The one who was hearing shouts of Hosanna on his way into the city. The one who was experiencing what we would call ministry success, because he had the numbers. He had people coming in droves to worship him. Jesus, who if anyone in history could fall back and rest on their laurels and say, I've done a pretty good job, it's this man. Jesus, who as soon as he went to the city, what does it say he's doing in Luke 19? He went to the temple daily to preach the gospel, hoping that other people would come to salvation. Jesus, this, remember this. This is Jesus, the one who was there when the names were written in the book of life before time began. He knows whose name is in it, and he knows whose names are not, and he is still weeping over the ones that are not in there. He is weeping and I ask you, church, when was the last time you wept over lost people in your life? Whether you know them personally or don't know them personally, when did the last time you wept over this? You see, we are just like the Pharisees. We are missing the point. We think loving God is coming to church every Sunday and listening to good preaching, great preaching today. But we think that loving God is not doing the big sins and doing generally good things and being kind and being nice and being a good moral person, smiling a lot and giving compliments and telling people that they look beautiful and all of these things. They have a nice day. And I literally read that, that have a blessed day was their way of, this is on Facebook. Why well, even pay attention? I don't know. That's my way of sharing the gospel. Have a blessed day. It's not a bad thing to say, but let's not say it's the gospel. We think that loving others is being kind. We think that other, telling our kids not to hit other children and to share their toys, that's sharing the gospel. Or that's sharing Jesus with them, I guess is a better way of putting that. We're missing the point. People are dying and going to hell all around us. And we're standing by holding the keys to their prison cell and not telling them that we have them. How do you love God and you love people? The answer is the same for both. We tell anyone and everyone who will listen that this great God has saved us and he has sent a great Savior to save others. And if you will place your faith and trust in him, you can be saved as well. This is ultimate love. The love of the Pharisees 
was to tell people they didn't belong to their elite club, was to carry out their religious rituals and to say, you can't come join me in my rituals because you're not a Jew. You're not worthy. You're not part of our group. And I ask, how many churches look like that? You don't fit our demographic. You're not exactly what we're shooting for. We're a this church. You're a this. There's another church down the road, though. What does that say about the gospel? You see, the love of Christ was painted a few chapters before in Luke, contrasting this this love the Pharisees had. The Pharisees had a come to us and we'll tell you whether you're good enough or not, right? Luke chapter 15, we see the parable of the lost coin. We see the parable of the lost sheep. We see the parable of the prodigal son. Jesus is saying that instead of being like the older brother and the prodigal son who just stayed back and hoped his brother would come home or not hoped his brother would come home, we don't really know, that he should have been begging his dad to go look for his brother. As long as there is an empty seat at this table, my brother is out there and he is lost. Please let me go look for him. I don't want the fatted calf. I don't want the feast. I don't want all of these riches. I want to go look for my lost brother. And that is what we should be doing. Chomping at the bit to go lost people and tell them about Jesus. See, Jesus is saying these are the two most, command, two most important commandments that there are and you're doing neither of them. You want to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Share the gospel. You want to love people with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? Share the gospel. It is the same command. And I ask you, you can only answer this for yourself. Are you more like the Pharisees or are you more like Jesus? I don't want to tell you what the conclusion I came to about myself this week. It is time we as a church stop resting on our laurels and begin doing what Jesus clearly states are the two most important things we can do. This means we must get out there and fulfill them. So yes, be kind. Yes, be joyful. Yes, be obedient. Yes, do good deeds. Yes, abstain from sinful activity. But do all of those so that people will ask you about the hope that is within you and you can answer them, Jesus. It's not about me. It's not about me not doing these sinful activities it's not about me doing these good deeds it is about jesus within me and he can be within you as well he's saying you clearly don't know what love is love equals evangelism god is sovereign over who is and isn't saved it is his business and he does it and yet in his sovereignty he has ordained that the way the most people are going to be saved is by existing believers going and telling them about jesus and then they believe and they go tell others about jesus as well this is the way he has set it up in his sovereignty does he know who they are yes do we no charles spurgeon said if if god was to paint a yellow stripe down the back of the elect i would go around lifting up shirts But as he didn't, I preach a whosoever gospel. I go to the lost people and I tell them about Jesus, expecting God to save them. And if he does or doesn't, it's his business. Love equals prayer. We pray that when we share the gospel with these people, that God would soften their hearts, that God would quicken their hearts, that God would convict them of sin, that God would save them. Because if not, it's going to fall on deaf ears every single time if he does not move. And I ask you, church, why are our knees not worn out? from being on them begging God to save people. Begging God to save people. We know by name. Not asking you to go home and get on your knees and pray for people you've never met. How many people do we know in our lives by name that are going to go to hell if they die tomorrow? That should break our hearts. 
We should weep over that like Jesus did. If that does not bother you, you need to check your spiritual pulse. If that doesn't bother you, furthermore, you need to look at Jesus. He knew who was and wasn't saved, and yet he still wept. Love equals urgency. Right now we are in the midst of a period of God's common grace. He has not returned yet. When he does return, he's going to judge the living and the dead. When he does return, he's going to separate the sheep from the goats. When he does return, he is going to gather his people and not gather his not people. But he hasn't come yet. That sky has not split open yet. That means we have time. But we don't have time to wait. We don't have time to say, I'll do that tomorrow or next week. Or hopefully he'll bring that up to me again because this time I've got a better answer for his questions. We seek out these people. We go to the lost. We cannot claim to love God and not love people. We cannot claim to love people and not tell them the truth while simply standing by and watching them drive headlong into eternal destruction and not say anything. We cannot love people if we are not willing to tell them that God saves in and through the work of Jesus on the cross and His resurrection. God saves. This is what it means to love God above all things. With our heart, with our mind, with our souls. This is what it means to love people the same way. The way Christ loves people. So really, the only question left that you have to answer for yourself is he, is he worth it? Is he worth this devotion? If the things about him are true, is he worth my life? And I can't answer that for you, but I pray that every person in here answers that with a resounding yes and then goes from this place and shares the gospel. Let's pray. Jesus, we come to you this morning, one, praying for repentance because we claim to love you and we are liars. Every person in this room And yet, you have saved us. You have saved many in this room. I pray that you would save more. If there's anyone here without a relationship with you, I pray they have heard the gospel, and I pray that you would move in their lives and transform their hearts to love you. I pray for forgiveness when we fail to do this. I pray that we would weep over the lost. I pray that we would understand more fully that it should not bring us joy to say that you are coming to judge and send people to hell. We know that that is true. We know that that is coming. And we know that for you to be God, you have to do that. But it should not bring us joy. It should make us weep. So I pray that this, this sermon, this message did not fall on deaf ears. I pray it was just an overflow of my heart this week as I have been convicted that I don't do this very well. But I pray that that can change. I pray that we would want to share the gospel with everything that we have to show our love for you and our love for others. May we not begin keeping a list of good deeds and bad deeds and hopefully the good outweigh the bad because A, that'll never happen and B, it does not matter. I pray that we would love you with all our hearts, with all our minds, with all our souls. In Jesus' name.
Amen.